Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Ben Graham with the news. The latest in the missing persons case of famed author Stephen King. Mr. King's car was found by our very own C.M. Alexander in the woods near her rural Maine home. Local authorities came upon C.M. covered in blood and pushing the totaled vehicle deep into a pile of underbrush. When questioned as to why she was bloody and hiding evidence, CM explained that this was all simply a big misunderstanding and nothing to worry about. Thank goodness. Listeners, I am certainly proud to work with such a selfless hero. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside C.M. Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What up, constant readers? Today we are tackling the second half of Misery, and we have C.M. leading our discussion today. Thanks, Josh. First, a quick recap of the book so far. Paul Sheldon is a famous writer, and he gets into a car accident and is rescued... By former nurse and his number one fan, Annie Wilkes. Paul is in bad shape. His legs are shattered. He's addicted to powerful painkillers. And Annie has shown some pretty strong signs that she is unstable and dangerous. She's left Paul alone for extended periods of time. She's lost her temper and abused him. And she's made him burn his non-misery transcript and is essentially forcing him to write a new misery book just for her. And last episode, we left off with Annie buying Paul a typewriter so he can write the best misery novel yet. And he failed in his first attempt, and after an interesting conversation with Annie, he starts to get into it, and he realizes that misery is not dead after all. And so Paul and Annie fall into this routine, and things are kind of looking up because he finally has it figured out. And by it, I of course don't mean his escape, I mean the book, because his escape has taken a back burner to misery. Mm-hmm. Which is... Uh, I think the theme of the second half of the book, the novel is kind of takes place of uh, the pills as the most important addiction mm-hmm. that is uh, keeping Paul where he is. Yeah, he he knows that he has started down a path that he has to finish because there's just too much good stuff there. And I don't know about you guys, but I am swept away right there with him. With mm. this novel. I I honestly wish that King had written like a compendium novel. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the right word. No, but. Uh, but you know what off? I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of just it released Misery's Return yeah. with Misery. That would have been Because really I would have cool. read it. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it does sound pretty crazy. And this first chapter that we come back into ends on a pretty foreboding note. And it reminded me oh yeah, Paul's in trouble. Like they've fallen into this routine, but things are not, are, are not okay. And it was this line, then the rain came and things changed. I, I read ahead. I thought that this chapter was what we were ending on with last episode. And so I came in so hyped. <laughs> being like, Whoa, this cliffhanger. And yeah, I, I came in so hyped. And they're like, no, we, we, we're, that's for next week's episode. <laughs> so I have been sitting on this. And that's been the that's the entire second half of this book to me. Mm-hmm. It is 
I could not put it down. Uh, at certain points, I had to walk away because I was physically ill. There's a point in this book near the end, the 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 final part of the book. I was reading at one of my favorite coffee shops in town, and I had to set the book down and take a fucking Xanax because I was <laughs> oh, having man. a panic attack because this book is so intense. I think our friend Ben needs help. Well, <laughs> that's well, well documented. Yeah. Every episode's kind of a cry for help. <laughs> it seems like it's going to go so well, though, right away, because they they have that routine, like she's making him great breakfasts and like, He's just cranking out pages and she's loving it. And it's, it seems like it's going to go well until she comes in one day just stone-faced. I wrote in my notes, then she pulls a Margaret White. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. She 100% uh, very does. Very reminiscent of Margaret White. Yeah. Uh, she uh, comes in one day and it is a textbook depressive episode. Like uh, last week episode we we talked about i'd i'd love to we could do a whole episode just trying to diagnose annie wilkes Mm -hmm. it's pretty obvious she's supposed to be like bipolar i guess and uh psychotic obviously but yeah this is a standard depressive episode she's covered in like food and goo and just stone-faced and doesn't doesn't care about anything no and she she just she comes into the room and she tosses the pills at him and she turns to leave and he goes annie are you okay and with no emotion she just says no and then she starts to like pinch her lip until it bleeds and slapping herself yeah she leaves and he hears her from the other room slapping herself hard in the face so she wasn't even doing it like in front of him for his attention she's just off in another room Hitting herself, which was creepy. This is something I wanted to talk about with you guys. Um, because mental health is uh, a thing uh, that I feel strongly about. I'm dealing with my own problems. And uh, I work with individuals in my in my day job. Uh, individuals with mental health problems. And I, I wanted to... I had some mixed feelings. Because... How do I put it? How did you guys feel about King's treatment of mental health in this book? I I wanted to know if you felt it was exploitative in any way. I feel like his treatment of the topic mirrored society's treatment of it, um, stigma. Mm. And we know statistically that people with mental illness are more often victims of Mm. crime than perpetrators. And so it's kind of easy to say this lady's psychotic. She has all these mental health problems. So she's, you know, going to hurt this guy. She's nuts mm-hmm. when that's not usually the case. And how, when was this book written? Uh, 88, yeah, I believe. Yeah, in the 80s. So I, th- I think we've come a long way since then, but mm-hmm. we still have a long way to go still. That's kind of how I felt about it yeah. the whole time, which is why I did feel sympathy that you guys gave me a lot of shit (laughs) with her, you know, in the first part Mm -hmm. and then again later. Yeah, that's my question is uh, how how sorry 
do we feel for, for Annie versus how sorry does King want us to feel for Annie? Because there's a line later on in the book that where Paul sees her and just for a split second, he's like, oh, I in this moment, I see her as, you know, uh, someone who could have been just a, a, a person you see out on the street. Uh, except for all these terrible things that happen and these chemicals in her brain are wrong. And you, I, I understood in that moment, I was like, ah, that's what CM was talking about. But also, she's not described sympathetically, like, at all. She's described as a monster. She is. And we're going to get to this um, in just a little bit, but she's a serial killer. <laughs> Also and, that. Also, yeah. yeah and, I was waiting for that to be touched on, and you guys just went back and forth. I'm like, guys, well, she's a goddamn maniac. It's it's the added layer of that mental health issue, which makes you pause and think, okay, is this about someone who's struggling, or is this about a serial killer? I choose to look at it like a serial killer because, you know, same mm-hmm. reasons that you talk for Ben, and I also in my day job, like this is my night job. Yeah. <laughs> I also work with... Um, individuals who struggle with mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just thought it was uh, something I wanted to touch on because it's literally the only part of the book that made me stop and think, be like, it, it felt a little, uh, well, of its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. So Annie's been neglecting Paul and he has to get himself into the wheelchair. He ends up writing part of the script longhand because he can't lift up the typewriter from the dresser by himself. He has to take some meds from his stash. And he wakes up with her sitting on the edge of his bed, like even more filthy than before. And she's holding a rat. Jesus Christ, and this escalates so fast. I yeah. had I had pet rats as a teenager. They're smart, clean, they make beautiful pets. They're You're wonderful. So weird. And I <laughs> Thanks, I Josh. love it. I mean that in the best way. Who just offhandedly is like, I had pet rats. Not a big deal. This scene bothered me a lot. Uh, as scenes of uh animal cruelty mm-hmm. tend to and are supposed to, it's kind of become a theme in the books that we've done. We're never gonna do Kuja. <laughs> uh Billy hitting dogs with his car. Uh, right. uh the it's, entirety of apt pupil. Uh King has a thing for uh, Well, he knows how to prey on our mm. yeah, our our vulnerabilities and our sympathies. Yeah, well and I think what also made this so shocking is that he doesn't he just describes that that he, she's holding like the rat trap with a rat in it. It's not until later after she's been just standing there with it that it, he mentions that it's alive. So I was just like, oh, it's a it's a dead rat in a rat trap. And I didn't think anything of it. And then it like starts looking. It looks like he sees it moving. And I'm like, oh, God. It's right oh, around She's been time. holding this live but back broken rat. And she like the fact that she she has one of her space out moments in that time. And he, she stares off for three minutes just holding this rat and mm. just staring off into nothing. I can only imagine being Paul in that instance of like being so terrified of what she was going to come back to. Mm-hmm. And she, she's, she does this and then she ends up squeezing the rat to death. And it's like, Paul is that rat. I mean, I know that's a real easy one, but yeah, well, yeah, she says, well, in the 
mental process of Annie Wilkes, we're all the rats, Mm -hmm. is we're all just stuck in this terrible life. And uh, Annie offers offers to solve the problem for him. Yeah, she basically offers to kill them both and end it all right there. And he says... Not until I finish. And it's which, so casual. Yeah. Yeah, this, okay. I know that writing the book is his only leverage with her, but I couldn't help but equate writing the book to the addiction, like you said, Ben, earlier, mm. to the pain meds. And I know that he didn't like mean, he didn't mean that all he wants to do is finish. He doesn't not care about, you know, living mm. because he obviously does have a strong desire to live. But I felt like maybe there was some small secret part of him that did mean it that way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's his his new addiction. You're right. He, I, I feel like there are moments where uh, later on that he doesn't. He kind of acknowledges I could do more to be getting out of here, but I mean, what's the point? Mm-hmm. I, I I'm cranking out a bunch of pages. Like I don't have time to like plan some escape. Like this stuff's coming. And when you're writing, you don't want to hit that writer's block. So he's just gonna. Boop, boop move through whatever here's a crazy thing uh when i was taking notes on this second half uh on my phone was taking notes about the links between writing and story specifically as addiction and i went to type novel uh the name of the narcotic that he's addicted to and my phone auto-corrected it to novel (laughs) oh deep Deep cut yeah (laughs) I, I like that also in that uh, in that scene, his um, I, I didn't write down the quote about his uh, depressive or depressives versus psychotics of like a depressive will kill themselves. A psychotic because of their poison ego will do everyone else a favor and take them with them right. when they go <laughs> like that's I mean, I am aware that I'm an egomaniac, but I have never once had that kind of inclination. But Oh, and the ego of Annie Wilkes yeah. is so... It's insane. Uh, the the part where he says, I, you know, he's trying to reason with her or uh, sympathize with her. And she says, you know, I understand, uh, you know, uh, we all get this way sometimes. I, I mean, it's been rainy and I've been in a lot of pain too. And she turns to him and says, you don't know anything about pain, Paul. His legs are shattered. And the fact that she 100% believes that her life is the the worst. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, it, it's as much <laughs> as I was like trying to be sympathetic and trying to reach the level of sympathy that uh, Saint CM has. Um, <laughs> things like that just get me so much and make Annie the amazing villain she is. And she, so this is when, this is when she goes to her laughing place. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And she tells him, so she's, she offers to kill them both again. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I want to finish this. You no, want to finish this. <laughs> and and even though she's in this terrible state, there's this, a part of her that acknowledges that, that yes, I do want to know. And I know that I'm having this episode. And so I have to leave basically so I don't kill you. So I don't do something terrible. And she tells him. I have a laughing place. And then she says sometimes she laughs when she goes there, but mostly she screams. For fuck's sake. If I was Paul, <laughs> that is when I would have started to scream. Yeah. yeah. 
This is when it gets interesting. She abandons him. She goes to her laughing place. And Paul has to escape his room again. And so he's... For the second time. Yes, for the second time. And Thank he God goes for out. Mr. Picklocks. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes out into the house, and it is just as much of a mess as Annie herself is. He decides that he's going to go to the front door. There are these three, like, um, kind of high-tech locks on it. He can't get out that way. He goes to the kitchen door. Same thing. He briefly considers burning the house down, but realizes he'd likely die, too. <laughs> and he... Yep. He wheels across the parlor and a scrapbook catches his eye and it says memory lane on it. And I wrote down all of the things in memory lane. If we want to go. Yes, through. let's let's it's, let's it's take a, a trip. It's a lot. Oh, okay. It is a lot. This Strap segment. in. All right. <clears throat> and then it I'm not going to talk after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have plenty to say after we go through all this. OK, so he opens the scrapbook memory lane. Memory lane. Memory Lane. <laughs> he opens a scrapbook. Memory Lane. <laughs> <laughs> he opens a scrapbook. And this is what he finds. <laughs> Nailed it. You're going to have to do that one more time. I was not expecting you to bail out on that. All right. Paul starts going through this scrapbook. And here's what he finds. First, Annie's parents' nuptials. Annie's brother, Paul's birth announcement... Annie's birth announcement. Newspaper clipping. Five die in apartment house fire. Bakersfield accountant dies in a freak fall, which is Annie's dad. USC student dies in a freak fall. Annie's college roommate. And these are all newspaper clippings. That one also included a poisoned cat. Annie's nursing school graduate announcement. Then we have our first obit for an elderly patient who died in a hospital in New Hampshire where Annie worked. Then six more, all elderly patients except the last one who was 46. That's all from 1969. Then we have a paper in Pennsylvania announcing new staff. One is Annie. That's in 1970. Two obits for elderly patients and one for a child who had an accident and a grievous head injury. And she keeps moving west. People keep dying. Then in 1978, Denver, the one she mentioned, we have an obit, then a wedding announcement for Annie and Ralph. That's in 1979. And Ralph looks just like Annie's father, Paul notes. The obits stop for a while. Then there's a clipping from a realtor's sheet of the house, the one that Paul's in, and it seems that she stopped killing around the time she met Ralph. Then a divorce announcement on the grounds of mental cruelty, and the divorce was initiated by Ralph. Then we have the Boulder, Colorado paper, with more than 30 obits from 81 to 82. And then she's named as new head maternity nurse. You know where this is going. (laughs) Fifteen days after that headline, nursery deaths begin. Eight of them. Then a headline that she's questioned in the infant deaths. Then a headline that she's released, followed by a headline for three more infant deaths. Then Annie is arrested, goes to trial for the murder of eight children. And this article also noted that some of Annie's victims lived long enough to be given names. Thanks, Stephen King. (laughs) Then we have um, other documents from and following the trial Goes to jury in the winter of 82. There's a photo of Annie in her cell reading one of Paul's misery novels. Three days later, she's found innocent. Next article, Sidewinder, Colorado paper, 1984. Mutilated and partially dismembered remains of young man found in the wildlife preserve. It's near Annie's house. Then, now this is the biggie. Then we have a headline from Newsweek that's two weeks old. Paul Sheldon missing. That article 
is the thing that I love about it is that it's just so cold and disconnected. Like it's just like, oh, nobody knows where he is. In other news, <laughs> let's uh, let's move on. Mm-hmm. It's where he's in his head. He, these people are like searching for him desperately. He thinks that his agent must be frantic looking for him, and it doesn't seem like anybody gives a shit. Yeah, like one person says something about, you know, I hope he comes around. Like they think mm-hmm. he's purposefully hiding out. Yeah, yeah. It made me wonder about Paul's life outside of the events of this novel mm-hmm. because we don't know a ton about it. We know that he's a famous author. We know he's been divorced twice, I believe. Yep. Uh, and there's some section of the novel where um, he's talking about how clean he's living now that he's at Annie's house right. because he, he doesn't even smoke because the one time he asked for a cigarette, Annie like got her scary face right. on. Um, but there's a quick throwaway line of he'd uh, if he was at home he'd be waking up to to ladies left and right right and, like if this when this article is like his agents like yeah he's probably fucking somewhere it, <laughs> like people don't give a Paul yeah. doesn't have a ton of friends yeah his he must life not seems, be the best his life seems very shallow and yeah uh, like it, he's clearly up his ass about the things that he writes uh, Mm. because he thought fast cars was the most amazing thing. Uh, And he looks down on, he looks down on his fans that love misery. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's clear that he uh, is just shallow and not a good person. Uh, Can I make one note that while reading that entire list of all the stuff that was in her scrapbook, I literally made a note when it said she became the head of the maternity ward. I just wrote, Oh no. (laughs) And as I'm going through my notes now, I saw Oh No, and it immediately was like, <laughs> I remember exactly what Oh No means. There's yeah. so many disturbing things it's, in that scrapbook. She uh, sees herself as an angel of death. Angel almost. of mercy. Yeah, angel of mercy, yeah. Because she sees all of these people as beyond hope. They're poor, poor things. Paul, Paul says at one point, uh, everyone in the world falls into one of three categories. Brats, poor, poor things, and Annie Wilkes. And it's the most poor, perfect summer. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and the poor things deserve to die. Yeah, she's just helping them out. Ooh. Oh, okay, so when you guys do it, it's okay. <laughs> when I do it, I'm creepy. <laughs> <laughs> no one's saying we're not being creepy. <laughs> All right, so it's this article... That kind of gets Paul going. He's finally, I think, seriously planning his escape. And he goes through a number of more scenarios in his head. And he finally settles on hiding a kitchen knife under his mattress. He falls asleep. And here I'm thinking, okay, Paul's going to get out of this. He's going to stab her. There's going to be like this epic fight, but it's going to be okay. And he wakes up to the sting of a hypo in his arm and Annie looming over him. And she asks him what he wants first, the good news or the bad news. <laughs> that is not a question I would ever want Annie to ask me. Uh, there's it, That is interesting. There's an alternate version of this story where Paul kills Annie at this point in the book. And I think that would be just as interesting. Because imagine the rest of this story playing out. He murders Annie. And then what? 
Then, then he's just stuck in this house. Then we have a, that's Gerald's game. Yeah, I was just about to say yeah, that's Gerald's game right there. Gerald's game. The good news. Well, what do you guys want first? Good news or bad news? <laughs> uh, the I good always news. want the good news. Okay. She got rid of his car. Thank no God. No one's going to find his car and come rescue him. Don't got to worry about that anymore. Yep. The bad news is that she found all of the broken threads around her house and she knows he's been out. She knows he looked at memory lane, which she actually is pretty pleased about. Well, she, I mean, she says, I, I left it there. Like, she knew what she was doing because mm-hmm. she knew he could get out. But the thing that's insane is when she mentions him being upstairs. Yeah, talk, let's talk about the threads around the house, sure. what she means by that. Yeah, so she uh, plucked hairs from her own head and, like, put them across, like, the bindings of the book or on doors or I think she mentions the one in like the one in her bedrooms, like a dresser drawer, I mm-hmm. think something like that. And he, in his internal monologue, is basically like, "I can't explain to her right now that like whatever was holding them on like could have just fallen off, that these hairs could have been broken forever ago." And that's the thing that makes this extra strength terrifying. Because mm-hmm. in a lot of like horror movies or anything, you have that moment of like, "Man, if they just played by the rules." They'd be fine. Mm-hmm. But if Paul had never left his room one time, she would still do what's yeah. about to happen because those things broke upstairs. So she knows and he never could possibly have done that. That's why I said the number of times he got out. He he says he's he left the room while she was gone four times. He, he's I been think. out three times. Three total. times. And he tells her that she's like, how many times have you been out? He says, you know what? You caught me. I've been out three times. I had to. I had no other choice. And she's like, no, no, he, that's impossible. You've been, I know how many. And he says, fine. How many times have been? I have I been out, Annie? And she's like, 12. She just picks a random yeah. number. And she, there's no convincing her otherwise. And that is absolutely terrifying. It, I was freaked out. He was, when he was yelling back at her, I was like, Paul, oh God, cool, mm-hmm. cool it, buddy. Yelling at Annie has never gone well yeah. for anyone. Yeah. Well, he's also uh, tripping his balls off. That's yeah. also oh, true. Because she gave him his pre-op shot, which she mentioned. So we have, he's like, pre-op, what, what the hell do you mean by pre-op? And he's like screaming at her, I've been out as many times as you want me to have been out. If you say it's 500, then I've been out 500 times, Annie. So let's talk about uh, Annie hobbling Paul. The scene. The The scene scene. of misery. There are are movies and books where when you mention it, everyone thinks of the scene. This is the scene of this book. I've never read the book. I've never seen the movie, but I knew this was coming. Yep, same. The I, I knew all I knew was it was different, and in the book it was worse. Yes. So I was like preparing myself, and as she pulls out the axe, the propane torch, and the betadine swabs, like, and that he to this day remembers all of the brand names on them. Like they're just, they're burned in his memory. And she says that she has to hobble him for both their sakes. This isn't, this is for the benefit of both of them that she's doing this. And so she, uh, she puts the betadine on his, on his ankle and, and on the axe and, and on the blades of the, on the blade of the axe, which uh, he think he said it's rusty also like the axe mm-hmm. looks like it has some rust and stuff on it. And then says, don't worry, 
I'm a trained nurse. And chops his foot off with an axe. And then... (laughs) Yeah, a moment of silence. (laughs) A moment of breathe it in. Uh, it's still stressful to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And like when he, I, I love that when he like tries to pull his leg up, he sees that all he did was make the opening wider mm-hmm. for her because mm-hmm. his foot didn't move anymore. And she chops through the rest of the foot and the mattress and very unceremoniously discards of the foot. Yeah, and she has this, there's this moment uh, on her face that he says like she looks, it's the same look she had when she had burned the script and ashes and like sparks flew Mm -hmm. all over the room where it's childlike. She's not truly there. She doesn't, she has not thought this plan through (laughs) in any way. She's just like, oh, well, this is obviously the only option I have. And then she goes through with it and there's repercussions of this is, major trauma and he could easily die from this and she you there's this moment of panic this childlike look on her face of like oh no look what i've done oops (laughs) annie made a boo-boo and it's so terrifying and she's just like as she and she's like explaining like well there's no like there's no uh like choking point to tourniquet this so i'm gonna have to burn it shut i'm gonna have to cauterize this wound Hits the blowtorch mm. and just burns his stump until it stops bleeding, and he passes out. He dives back into the <laughs> into the haze. I wish he would have passed out when she pulled the axe out, <laughs> <laughs> so that we wouldn't yeah. have to read what happened. Sparing me from right. the scene. <laughs> Here's this is a little off topic, but you know what makes this scene hilarious Hmm. i would love to hear because i can't think of anything (laughs) so a friend of mine who'd read this uh apparently somebody told him so he told me to do it go back and read that scene but read all of annie's dialogue out loud in a transatlantic accent (laughs) (laughs) don't worry i'm a nurse (laughs) no time to suture i'm gonna have to burn this thing shut I'm doing this for us. (laughs) Jesus. Fucking. No, it was so good. It just made me laugh. I wanted to share that moment with you guys. Podcast canceled because I'm going to read every book from now on where every character just talks like that. I can never read again. That's Josh's friend. I'm sorry, man. All right, now we come to part three. So we end on this gruesome, upsetting scene, and we come back to Paul, and he's using his typewriter. You know, some time has passed. He's been fighting this infection. He's recovered enough that he started typing again, and the letter T just came off. This is literally my favorite part in the entire book. Do it, man. Yeah. The formatting of this is so genius because we come back, it's part three, and the first... Uh, bit is we immediately jump back into Misery's uh, return. So immediately we know, well, Paul survived. I mean, obviously <laughs> would have been a really crazy book uh, if <laughs> that was the, the end. main character died uh, three-fourths of the way through. <laughs> but we, we know that he's writing again. The ends are missing. Because at some point when Annie left 
the first time after uh, she had found out that he could get into his chair all the uh, all on his own. She said, hey, if you can do that on your own, then fill in your own fucking ends. Yeah. Dropping the only F-bomb Annie drops in the book. Did you guys think, go Annie? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I didn't either. No, I, uh, I thought that was bad. So the, he's he's typing the book, and the ends are missing. So there's just that little bit of struggle reading this part where you're filling in the ends, and then the very last line of this chapter, you're reading it, or at least this is how I read it. I was reading it, and then suddenly I can't read it anymore, and I'm like, wait. Wait, I can't. What are these words even supposed yeah. to be? Mm-hmm. The and then it goes to the next chapter, and it's Paul typing, and he has the same where he's typing, and then he stops. He's like, "Wait, what?" And he picks up the typewriter, and the T falls out. And I thought that was the most brilliant piece of writing in this entire book. How it made you feel connected to Paul's state of mind. And how the book itself is falling apart. Yeah. That's a really good perspective on that. I I like that a lot. I (laughs) loved that. Anyway, continue. Now go back and read it in a transatlantic accent. (laughs) (laughs) My teeth fell out. (laughs) And he's also, as as he's going through this, the E falls out. So he's missing an N, a T, and an E. And a thumb. Yeah, that's, oh! and that is almost casually, the, the first mention yes! of it is so casual. It's like, oh, it's summer now, missing a foot, missing a thumb. The T fell out, but I can't ask Annie for a new typewriter yeah. because, you know, she's going to take off another body part if I do. Yeah, I was the, like, did I miss something? I know, yeah, I did He just too. casually is like, well, that's, no thumb. Yeah, it's it's the, the sudden shift. Like I said, the the second half of this book everything escalates so fast and where it comes back from this horrible act and the first thing we know is that was terrible but it is now even worse (laughs) in who knows how we don't know how much time has passed and he is broken he is as broken as the typewriter because he says you know an older or a younger tom show or <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Paul Sheldon a few months ago would have asked Annie. Mm-hmm. He makes it a like he says like I should ask her for a new typewriter. <laughs> That's hilarious, me. Yeah, as though like yeah, even earlier he would have, and now it's just like <laughs> that's never gonna happen. And what is the Annie logic behind him losing his thumb? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember actually <laughs> because. <laughs> I, that whole thing just felt so um, jarring because I was not expecting another maiming. <laughs> and so I, I like I blanked that out, I guess. <laughs> he and this is part of the reason he's not going to complain about the typewriter, because he didn't he didn't necessarily complain about it, but he made some sort of offhand remark. He kind of like bitched about oh, it a little yes, bit. Yes, about the dead sound of hit because he kept hitting the N. And yeah. He got, was annoyed by like the dead sound it made. And that was. Yeah. That was a so, great. Bye bye thumb. Fucking A. And uh, just takes a knife and an just, electric knife. Yeah, electric carving knife. Uh, it gets worse because she comes back with it on a birthday cake. 
fuck. Yep. I think I actually did block out parts of this last <laughs> portion of the book because I fucking completely forgot about that. Because she said if he was good, she could that he could have some cake and not have to eat, eat his the special thumb. candle. <gasps> the special candle. Do you have any more Xanax, Ben? <laughs> uh, I do, actually. I might need some. <laughs> Xanax party. Ugh. All right, Annie and Paul fall into another sort of routine, an uneasy piece, I guess. Yeah. And then an officer comes driving up. Let's talk about what happens with the officer. It's horrible. It's like one horrible moment it, right after another in this. It does actually have one of my favorite parts of this book is when he throws wasn't uh, ashtray. He throws the ashtray through the window and can't think of anything to yell and just yells Africa <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> cuz that we're in Paul's head that that reference makes sense but imagine being that police officer and you're just looking around it's all quiet all of a sudden window shatters Africa <laughs> So this officer sees Paul and he pulls out the picture of Paul and he's he, he recognizes, okay, this is the guy I'm looking for. And then comes along Annie. Who, wielding a giant wooden cross that she used to be, mark her cow's grave from the time earlier when she was gone and she let a cow explode. Presumably. Uh, <laughs> That's not worth going into. <laughs> uh, she, uh, she like drives it into his back knocking him to the ground, then picks it up and jabs it into his stomach and then back into him, uh, I think, six more times. And then just this giant cross casually just tosses it over her shoulder and walks away. And I was like, oh, all right, that fucked up. That's it. All right, cop's dead. Cop's nope. not dead. Poor Officer Kushner. <laughs> oh, God. He crawls back to his car and then all of a sudden, Annie reappears on her lawn boy and the cop drops his gun and he reaches for it and she runs Ugh. over his hand and the gun with her lawnmower. Then she runs over his head. The description of Paul seeing like the shredded tatters of his shirt mixed in with the blood that sprays all over the goddamn mm -hmm. lawn uh, and then he says he envies the cop. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, man. Like, to think that you just watched that, and there's a part of you that's like, man. Must be nice. <laughs> 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 exactly. And this is, it gets interesting here, because this is where Paul realizes that he's running out of time, and that he needs to kill Annie before she kills him. And so you're thinking, okay, he's finally serious about this. He's finally serious about escape. But then two state troopers, Wilkes and McKnight, come looking for Kushner shortly after all of this happens, and they question Annie. Paul does not try to get their attention because, first, he has to finish misery. Second, he has to kill Annie himself. I respected the fuck out of that. That was great. <laughs> that was How much of that is justification to himself? Because, I mean, I wouldn't blame him for not wanting to yell. He says, you know, one of these cops looks like big and tough mm -hmm. as hell. He calls him David and Goliath. Yeah. He thinks about yelling. And he's like, there's there's a chance they could get the drop on her. But the, he notices the other one has his jacket, jacket buttoned closed. up. Yep. So he'd have to 
unbutton his jacket to get to his gun. Yeah, yeah so like, yeah, you have to wonder how much of it is. It, it's a combination of the novel and just one hundred percent. Well, after what he did to fear. after what she did to one cop, yeah, like. He knows how fast she is and how strong she is. She's almost like inhuman. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. a, of this monster. She's the goddess. Yeah. She's she immortal and solid. That, oh God, that just rocked my brain for a second. Oh, I but, didn't even mean to this no, time. Well, <laughs> oh, only, only because uh, it just connected those two things to me that how Annie is at the beginning. Annie is this disgusting, gross golem uh that is you know just rock solid annie through and through and by the end she's the goddess like the transition Mm -hmm. that she has made in his head that's just Mm -hmm. i didn't even think about that until Mm -hmm. you just put those things back to back and it's a really tense scene too because the cops come into the house paul can hear them talking and they're questioning her and the the elaborate story that she comes up with about kushner Mm -hmm. and the details she gives it's just so gross to the it's point perfect. where she had put his fingerprints on a can of Pepsi mm-hmm. and then driven down the road and thrown it on the side of the road, which is half brilliant and half just insane because like they're not going to find just a random can of Pepsi. But what if they did? But like in Annie's mind, everything is so absolute mm-hmm. that she's like, well, yeah, of course that'll get him off my back. Uh, yeah, everything is very black and white for her. Meticulous. Oh, yeah. But also really bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, as when she had to get rid of the first cops stuff, she took Paul down to the basement and uh, just basically left him down there and explained her plan to I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the car to my laughing place and. I'm going to get throw the body here and I'm going to do all this stuff. And as she's laying out that plan that she has had minutes to come up with because this has all just been happening and she's been cleaning. It is fucking perfect. It's a great plan. And as terrifying as uh, being left alone in this dark basement uh, with the rats for who knows how long. Mm It is where Paul comes up with his plan. Yes. <laughs> because in the basement, just within arm's reach, he finds a can of uh, lighter fluid. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when he sh- Annie comes back to and takes him back upstairs to his room, he has it tucked down the back of his pants for later. Yep. Just like Shawshank. <laughs> listen listeners send me a can of lighter fluid uh anyway that's a deep cut um but actually weirdly enough uh not the only time that paul has made me think of andy Dufresne throughout this book is that just me because his um as bad as things get he still has that drive to live. He he didn't remind me of Andy <laughs> at all. Uh, only, only oh, because... I, I respect your right to think of Andy. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, well, to, if, it's like Andy if Andy uh, lost his unbreakable will. 
<laughs> you know, the character-defining thing about Andy. Fair, fair. <laughs> I think Ben loves Andy the most. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know, maybe it's uh, after years of reading King, I'm just conditioned to look for connections where they don't exist. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Paul finishes his book. And okay, I mentioned this in the first episode. You guys gave me infinite shit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know this is really horrible, but this is where I felt sorry for her because Paul finishes and Annie is so, so excited and she's going to get champagne and you see like this, a glimpse of this relationship, like they could be friends or they could be lovers and you know, she could be his wife celebrating, oh, you finally finished your book, you know, this yeah. supportive person, which is not at all how the relationship <laughs> has been. In any way, she gets a champagne, she's coming back, and Paul has a special surprise for her. He, well, and he asks her ahead of time uh, if he can have just, just one cigarette, uh, because it's his tradition that when he finishes writing a novel, he just likes to celebrate with a cigarette. And she doesn't like it, but... They both have this, like, I don't have to worry about lung cancer, though, do I? (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to kill me. And I love that he brings that up and Annie's just like, oh, yeah. Good good point. (laughs) We're all going to be dead soon. Whatever. Uh, So so he's got this plan and he has his cigarette. She only gave him one match, which also was intense because it's an all or nothing deal here. And he pulls the lighter fluid out from under the floorboard where he's hidden it. She comes in the room and he has poured the, all of the lighter fluid over the manuscript of Misery as it's sitting there on the table. Which he has spread out in a pile with the title page just perfectly yep. <laughs> positioned, which I thought was and, a great touch. And she had you know, been making him fill in his own ends so she has not she is not up to date with the book yeah she's so not she's going to be past. finishing the book or yeah she, she had said she uh you know annie uh i would really like it if you would would just wait for it all to be over yeah. <laughs> and so he he strikes the match she walks in and she sees it and he goes it's a great book and then drops the match and sets it on fire. And it was so badass. So satisfying. Oh, and she she runs in to, to grab the book and like try to like put it out and pick mm-hmm. up pages. Is literally like grabbing burning Burn, yeah, paper yeah. with Reaching her Reaching into the fire. And he throws the royal at her and knocks her on her stomach. And... Onto the shards of the broken bottle of champagne that she dropped the moment mm-hmm. she saw the the mm-hmm. match fall. So I I loved the the visual of she comes and she grabs all of this burning paper with her hands and then kind of like looks around like oh uh what wait what now and he says something along the lines of like I imagine she was thinking of maybe taking them and putting them in the bathtub or something. <laughs> and I enjoyed that, that visual of she's like her not thinking things through. Sure. She is in mm-hmm. this moment. The book is the only thing that has yeah. kept her alive for months. The book is her trapped child under the car and she's lifting yeah. the car. But then is my favorite oh God, part. That is tragic. That, <laughs> makes me, that makes me feel a little. Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> Not just me, listeners. <laughs> yeah, I have feelings. Anyway. Uh, so this is, uh, of this entire end sequence, this is my favorite part. 
So Annie is on the ground on fire and she tries to get up, falls over again. And <laughs> Paul climbs on top of her, grabs burning paper and starts shoving yeah. it in her mouth and like just taking on fire paper and shoving it down her throat piece after piece. And then tell her, uh, when she like throws him off and she gets up and he looks and her throat is completely mm. swollen and blackened because it's burning from the inside. Ugh. I don't and know how. And she still comes yeah. in. Still- how, does she, how is she surviving that? And she also hits her head when she falls on something, right? Uh, once, once she gets up from that, she goes after him again, trips over the typewriter and mm-hmm. cracks her head on the mantle. And that's when I was like, she's dead. All right. Whoo, we're safe. And so he... <laughs> Puts out the fire because he realizes if the house burns, he will die. Uh, and goes to crawl back to his chair. Guess what? Annie's not dead. She starts crawling after him. And uh, I, I think, doesn't he say something like, she reaches to grab him and had his foot been there? Yeah, yep. <laughs> had she not chopped off his foot, <laughs> she would have had him. It's so scary. It's the, the, this is the whole, this whole sequence is the part where I was like, I need to calm down because it's so intense. Yeah. This, you can feel that feeling of like a dream uh, where you're trying to run from something. Something's after you and you're trying to run. And that dreamlike feeling of not being able to run Mm -hmm. away. Him crawling across the floor through broken glass on his shattered legs away from this burnt hands uh, uh, and away from this monster like she's horrible burned and like gasping and making these it's so primally terrifying it's great oh yeah and he gets out of the room and he he makes it to the bathroom and to get more pills and passes out. Yeah, he slams the door Just, behind her and locks it. Yeah. And her fingers poke out from beneath the door and he like pokes them back. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 no. No, we're not we're not doing this. Uh but that the moment where he's like when he wakes up and he is for certain she's right on the other side of that door. Like that she's like on her way to him or something. But the terrifying part that we find out is that she's not on the other side of that door because she is not in the house Yeah. when he wakes up. <gasps> oh, Wil- God. Wilkes and McKnight, the two David officers from earlier, yep, David and Goliath, come back and they're, you know, they find Paul and Annie is not there. And we don't find out until like towards the very end of the book when he's back in New mm-hmm. York and we're figuring out, you know, how he's recovering from this. That she had made her way out to the barn to get was it the shotgun or something chainsaw oh the oh yeah yeah she had her hand on the chainsaw Mm, and that's where she finally died oh god can you imagine (sighs) this whole after when he's in the bathroom it goes back to the first half of the book where it's his imagination his the thing that makes him a writer is the thing that's almost as worst enemy because he his imagination is so vivid he can see her on the other side of the door just waiting for him Mm -hmm. and he when he leaves the bathroom to to try and find a way out he keeps turning and expecting her to jump up from behind a couch Mm -hmm. and come after him but she's not there and uh that brings us when the cops 
cut the cops show up and save him. And uh, he grabs the penguin statue and throws it out of the window and says, help me, help me. And he gets saved. We reach the epilogue where it continues, where we don't, like you said, you we don't know mm-hmm. uh, what happened. We just, uh, they, he says, she's in there. She's in the bedroom. And he's emaciated. And, mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm all over the place right now. But can we talk about what he looks like? Sure. Yeah. I'm going to lose my train of thought, but that's okay. <laughs> um, because when the cops come in, they break down the door and they find him. And it goes to the cop's point of view for a for a short bit. And them describing how he looks. I hadn't thought of how Paul looked through all this. Had you guys? No, no. Not at all. And except for when he described his legs. The yeah. First time. That's the only time I've really actually I like ever addressed. I did kind of because he's he had talked about how he was lifting the typewriter to work, you know, keep his arms strong. Mm-hmm. And she would had been feeding him. So I didn't I was surprised by the scene because I didn't expect him to look as bad. I expected exactly. him to be injured and his hands to be burnt. But it seemed like she was taking some sort of care of him. But then we kind mm-hmm. of find out even what little care she was giving him was like, it was Annie'd. Yeah, yeah, he was emaciated. And I can just imagine with like a big bushy castaway beard and like <laughs> just disheveled. I thought that was interesting. What was I talking about? I think, well, I think the yeah, point you were making, epilogue. yeah, was that when he's back in New York at this point, we still don't know where Annie went, what happened to her. We just know mm-hmm. she was gone. And he's having, understandably, a lot of problems. Um, he's really struggling. He still kind of sees Annie everywhere. He he has visions of her finding him and attacking him. And that's when we find out later that she died in the barn. He walks into his apartment and she leaps from behind the couch and cuts his head off. And he then wakes up. Yeah. Like, it is presented to us in the book as though it happened. Like, we see it through his eyes. We see uh, it's just like her in the hallway with the mm-hmm. shotgun. Mm-hmm. We don't know that she's dead yeah. and she jumps out and chops his head off. And he describes looking at her <laughs> as his head rolls away. And then it's like a chapter break. And he's like, yeah, but that didn't really happen. But in the in his severed head moment, the last thing he thinks is goddess. But like, and this is this is almost a year later. Mm -hmm. So I mean, not to say like that. Yeah, he should be over it. Like that. No, that's insane. But it's like still so much time has passed. We find out that his legs had to be rebroken just to have a chance at walking. And Mm -hmm. again, if if he's like, if she hadn't cut off his foot, he'd never walk normal because. But now that he has a prosthetic foot, he can actually walk with a cane. Yeah, she did him a favor. She did, yeah. she did him a real solid. She did say that she had to hobble him for both their sakes. Yeah. So she, Annie, Annie's right she again. She was never wrong. <laughs> I, I take it back. Annie's truly <laughs> the hero of the She's book. the real hero. So the we fuck. His, he's <laughs> clearly got his PTSD, uh, but he also notes that he still has uh, a drug addiction from everything that happened and now it's presented that he has uh, alcoholism also and writer's block and writer's block and it's just such a 
it looks like it's it's going to be such a depressing end to what should be such a you know a harrowing tale of survival. Uh, but then at the very end, he writes. He mm-hmm. finds a he finds, finds a new story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, the the note that I think that's what it says in the book is that uh, um, can you and he can and he will and he he cries because he finally can mm-hmm. and that's still it's still a really dark ending mm-hmm. because just because i mean just because he can write again does not mean that things are going to turn out any better than what his life is now but to have that one little thing back is huge oh yeah. uh, and we glossed over it that uh misery's return he got it published because he didn't actually burn <laughs> The copy of Misery's Return, he <laughs> right. he hid it under the bed, and what he burned was just like his scrap paper and stuff. So he went back in there and got his copy of Misery's Return and got it published yeah. again because <laughs> misery was as important as life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we get to our ratings, uh, I want to bring up two things. One thing we completely glossed over. It's a very small part of the book, but in Annie's uh, memory lane. It is mentioned that there's a, a young hiker that was found hacked to bits with an axe. He was a, an artist uh, traveling the country that Annie picked up. And while he was staying with her, uh, he mentions the reason he was traveling through Colorado is he was uh, heading to a the ruins of a of an old hotel <laughs> that had exploded several years was before. Was it overlooking anything? <laughs> uh, he was traveling to the Overlook Hotel uh, of The Shining, which, uh, if you've only seen the movie, spoiler alert, blew up. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, any connection is just catnip like, for me. While we're in Colorado, I guess we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved that. And um, my, my second point is crazy, but hear me out. All right, let's do this. This book, Misery, is Paul Sheldon's memoir. Oh. This book. Yeah, okay. Is... Okay, so in the epilogue, we find out that Misery's Return uh, has been published, and his his uh, agent has said, "Well, what you really need to do is write your story, man. Yeah. Write the story. This is go- this is going to be the biggest selling book ever, not just because it's a good book, but because of the story behind how it was written. You write the story of what happened to you, and it will be even." better and paul says i i never could because i am a storyteller i if i wrote that book it wouldn't be the true story mm-hmm. it would be my exaggeration yeah he'd add of, and change little things here and there and then it my argument is that's what this book is the finale of this book didn't happen as mm-hmm. the way it was written several parts of this book don't add up. Annie says at some point, I believe it's during the rat exchange, she's holding it and she's like, see how it struggles to get away. And, you know, I, I'm sure that's what you're thinking too, Paul. But you won't escape. Maybe you would if this was one of your stories. But this isn't. This is real life. And things don't happen that way. And this uh, sentiment is repeated a few times throughout the book. Mm-hmm. 
And yet, there are several parts of the book that contradict that. Well, now, that's because this is a book. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this is an insane argument, but hear me out. During the good times, Annie lets Paul out onto the back porch to read. Yeah. Does that make sense? What we know of Annie, would it make sense that she would just be like as paranoid as she is, as completely detached and terrified of her neighbors, that she would just be like, yes, please, uh, go outside? Yeah, I did think that was really weird. I don't think so. Annie has a sweet tooth. She loves sweets. Uh, when she's in her depressive episode, she eats tons of candy. When he sneaks into her pantry, there's just sweet food everywhere. Uh, when she has caviar to celebrate the end of the book, uh, she hates it. But she also licks rat blood from her fingers. But that touch is so unreal. Mm -hmm. It is exaggerated. So exaggerated. Like it's a novel. And finally, when Paul does make his big escape, it's a set piece. He's this malnourished, weak man. Sure, he's been lifting the typewriter to keep his arms strong, but he sets himself on fire, basically. Mm -hmm. He says that, like, he sets it on fire on his lap, on the yeah. table that is resting on his wheelchair. He picks up the typewriter to throw at her, and it's on, fire is dripping from it. He beats this woman who he is constantly described as just this solid brick of muscle and uh, a hobbled um defeated man brings her down and she still gets away like the monster in a horror movie crawls away to get a chainsaw the idea that paul got away and what better way to get back at annie than to write this book turning her into this overblown, over-the-top monster for all the Roidmans in the world. I just really like that idea. I'm on board. Yeah, I say I'm yes. I'm sold. Right? That's canon. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, I'll keep it short and sweet. Okay, five out of five. I, I told you guys when we finished the first half, I texted our group chat, this might be my favorite book. Full stop. Like, not just favorite King book. This book is perfect, action-packed, the characters are amazing, it's perfect. Five out of five. Yep, uh, I, I'm right there with you. I love everything about this book. It was so exciting, it was so cool, and I didn't expect so much, and I didn't expect I was going to love it as much as I did. So, uh, five out of five. This book goes down in history is one of my favorite Stephen King books. I'm so happy to be able to find a favorite Stephen King book again because I thought I found them all. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I'd have to give it five out of five blue chambray shirts. Hell yes. Hell we go. All right. Uh, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Please join us in our next episode where we will be watching the movie Misery. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you that if you want to be a writer, the only real requirement is that ability to remember the story of every scar. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. What do you guys think of Ben's theory that misery is Paul's embellished story about his time with Annie? Tell us on our Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public, or send your theories to our email 
dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And please like and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review. That's how we move up the iTunes ladder and get noticed by other listeners. Isn't it funny how Ben totally made up a fake news story about me kidnapping Stephen King? Don't worry, Ben. You'll get yours. Nobody messes with the dragon lady. Goodbye, listeners. <laughs>